This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Shane Janik, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Shane, as a lot of you all know, is also known as Courtney Act, is a drag artist, singer and entertainer who rose to fame in Sydney's drag scene and on the first season of Australian Idol in 2003. Courtney has since starred in RuPaul's Drag Race and Celebrity Big Brother. Shane has now written his first book, The Memoir. It's called Caught in the Act, and it's about the journey so far and our understanding of gender, sexuality, and identity. Do you know that I have never seen any of those shows? (laughs) (laughs) I just don't do um, uh, reality shows. I don't know. I just I don't watch television much. That's fair. But I knew who you were. Oh, that's I've cut through. Yeah, you have cut through. Was that from the ABC? It must be. Yeah, because I do watch. And also, I think you were at the um, industry dinner earlier this year. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and you put on yeah. a great show for the us. The Arbiers. The Arbiers, which I really enjoyed. For those of you that don't know what the Arbiers are, they're like the Academy Awards of the Australian book industry. Exactly. <laughs> the Australian Book in- yes. Australian Book Industry Awards. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, so I want to know how you came to be. How I, well... <laughs> When two people love each other very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I grew up in Brisbane in the 80s and 90s in the suburbs on the north side in, in Brighton. And I just always would run around the house singing and dancing and was, I, I mean, these are sort of my my mum and dad's and sister's descriptions rather than mine because I was just so young that I don't remember. But I remember mum asking me if I wanted to go along to do some singing and dancing lessons on Saturday morning. And uh, I said yes, and I just have always loved performing. I've always loved singing, dancing, acting, entertaining in general. And so, yeah, I grew up in a world where I got to express that one, you know, a few hours a week, well, and probably whenever I was at home. But um, I just grew up with parents who are very supportive, very loving, which is very fortunate, and got to be celebrated, got to got to enjoy all of those sort of creative sides from a young age, which was wonderful. And did you think from a young age that you were going to be an entertainer? Like was it that that's how you express story? Yeah, an entertainer, yeah. definitely. Obviously the drag queen thing was not apparent until not much, really. much later. <laughs> yeah. Um, but definitely always just loved being on stage. And in the beginning it was like, pantomimes um, at the fame agency, you know, playing a mouse in Cinderella or something like that. And I I just always, I think as well, um, a lot of it was admiration for the other people who were on stage. So just watching the way these big characters in pantomimes would entertain an audience and how the power of the stories 
would make people laugh or make people feel. And I, I remember the, the scripts and the songs of these sorts of pantomimes that we do at Fame in the Holidays were always quite simple but always so witty and always something in it for the kids, something in it for the parents, and they just used to love how genuinely entertained these audiences would be. Like a few hundred people would cram themselves into this tiny little theatre in Bowen Hills in Brisbane, and it was a bit of a, a dive, like just a Besser brick building, nothing special about it. But when the show began and the lights went down, the audience was transported to some magical place and, and and entertained for the next few hours. And I just always, I don't know, I always enjoyed it. It always felt special. You know, um, from where I sit, I always think, I'm always taken by how multidisciplined entertainers are. I, I might see somebody and I think, oh, they're a great actor. And then, you know, I might see them singing somewhere else or mm. I might see them dancing somewhere else. And they're usually not just good at one thing. It's several disciplines, isn't it? Yeah, well, a lot of it's interlinked, I think, especially when you're younger and you're discovering what specific things you're good at. And then I think for a lot of people maybe who have success in the industry, the success is, you know, one facet of that. Like they might, I do love it when you see someone uh, who's an actor all of a sudden in a musical singing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these days you're never quite sure. You're like, can you sing or was there <laughs> yeah. was there computers that helped? Or was there an algorithm there? But, um, yeah, I do... I. I've definitely just always loved being on stage and performing and and that I guess extends to the arts in general. Like I have, well, I have no skills when it comes to like painting or drawing or anything like that. I can do makeup, which I guess is a form of that. But absolutely, um, yeah, it's really interesting how just that creative expression, however that manifests is. Do you have a preference to one over another? Um, Well, I love... Probably one of my most favourite things is doing my cabaret shows where I'll write the music and I'll write the story and I'll come up with the costumes and the ideas and then get to perform it on stage. And I love, I think it's that power of storytelling and watching Mm -hmm. what, what emotions you can elicit from the audience. And in a weird way, writing this book was kind of the really deep and powerful version of that. It's the most lengthy storytelling I've ever done. And it was really exciting to be able to get to really dig my teeth into these stories and and for myself and for the sake of storytelling, I think there was a real benefit from, for me personally, in being able to tell these stories in such depth and by spending, you know, more than a year just every day waking up and writing and writing and writing and then finally editing it down to the final book that we've we've published was just a an amazing process. Well, I I'm, I'm going to give you a tip, mm. right? Because you're so young, <laughs> there'll be another book. I hope so. <laughs> another memoir. Because I always look at memoirs um, for young people, and I think, gosh, they must have packed a whole lot into that life because. <laughs> Usually memoirs come much later, but yes, you will because there'll be a second half and a third and whatever for your life, right? right? The funny thing is is that I wrote about 220,000 words and we had to chop that down to about 100,000. So Mm. um, Lex, my publisher at Pantera, she said, you know, just write everything, just write everything and then worry about it later. And I took that way too literally. (laughs) I want to go back to growing up. Did Mm -hmm. you feel, how did you feel? Did you feel empowered. I mean, you tell me that you had great support from your parents and Mm. your family and whatever. Did you feel that in the community? Did you feel that at school? Tell me about some of the struggles of growing up. I think a little bit different to say your peers. Yeah. I think 
interestingly, in the beginning, everything felt delightful, like at school. In primary school, there was no great distinctions. There was just a lot of young people. I remember some kids like sports, some kids like music, but there was never much of a big deal placed on that. I think it wasn't until about grade four, I remember encountering my first alpha male uh, who was one of my teachers. And he just, there was something about me specifically that seemed to rub him wrong. I I didn't know what it was, but it was, I guess it was the time when gender became, I became first aware of it, that boys were meant to act a certain way and girls were meant to act a certain way. And I didn't fall into line with how young boys were supposed to act. I think some of it came from the fact that I liked singing and dancing and performing. Mm. And then others were more nuanced. It was about, um, you know, just my body language, my voice and all Mm. those sorts of things. I was never one of the boys. And yeah, that was sort of where the interaction began. And I first became aware that there was something about me that some people wouldn't approve of. And then that continued to snowball into high school. And despite having really supportive parents, I think the really interesting thing, right, is my mum and dad, so supportive, so wonderful, never shamed me or made me feel like who I was was less than, but still the impact of society at large and the messages I picked up from the media and the television and the things that I learned at school, they still impacted me in such a way that it really took me decades uh, to unpack the shame of growing up feminine and growing up queer and growing up different. And I just think it's, it's so telling. And I think if you were a young queer person who didn't have supportive parents, I can't even imagine how challenging it would be to mm. understand yourself or resolve your identity. So I know a lot of my friends and our parents of children, mm-hmm. you know, different um, gender neutral, you know, mm-hmm. gay, whatever. I mean, there's so many uh, different ways that people identify themselves and they're all loving and accepting. But the thread I have seen through a lot of the conversation is life is hard anyway. Mm-hmm. And then this makes for a harder life. And I think that there is a, for parents, I think that there's a sadness in that, that that Mm. maybe uh, he or she or their life is going to be harder. Yeah, I think that I understand that, but I think the kicker is that the life of the child isn't something that the child is determining. It's who they are intrinsically. And so, so the way that you make life less hard is by being supportive and understanding and educated uh, on the subject. And I think that um, having these conversations, I mean, the world is obviously a different place than Brisbane in the eighties was for me growing up and as supportive as my parents were, they just didn't have, nobody had the language. And I, mum and dad read the book and they were like, Oh gosh, we had no idea. We're so sorry. Why didn't you tell us? And I was Mm. like, I didn't know. Mm. I didn't have the language either. Mm. It wasn't until I, got out into the world and actually started reading books, um, different memoirs and like uh, Gender Outlaw by Kate Bornstein and um, Jenny Boylan's book and Janet Mock's book and Chaz Bono's books that I finally saw a different experience reflected back. It wasn't necessarily my exact experience, but it was that in-depth storytelling that really enabled me to connect with um, or empathise with different human experiences related to gender and identity and sexuality. And I think that's 
the thing is that there's just been one story or a, a couple of stories been told for a very long time that don't necessarily reflect the diversity of humanity. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I might have this wrong, so you can correct me. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm an older person, right? <laughs> and what I see with my nieces and nephews and my great nieces and nephews is they don't notice difference. They're mm. not like us, you know. Yeah. They really are accepting of anything and everything, and I love that about them. I mean, I've got two little great-nephews. They're mm-hmm. 13 and 8. They don't even notice that, mm. you know, if I introduce them to a same-sex couple, they're, they're fine. If I introduce them to, you know, a heterosexual couple, they're fine. They don't make a comment. They don't notice it. It's just part of their life. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I think that because younger people have grown up with more visibility and diversity, those different experiences aren't as different or or notable to them. I think the important thing is, is that whilst, say, the same-sex couple might go unnoticed, I think the reason is because they, they just understand it and they're like, oh, yeah, there's two men who are yeah. married or there's two women who are unmarried. That makes sense. And I think that's, you know, because of all of those people that have, you know, come before me who have told those stories and, and mm. created that visibility. And I think it's really as well because there is... Um, the only message I think of the queer community, which I think should be the message of society at large, is whoever you are, uh, however you feel, whoever you're attracted to, however you want to dress, however you want to express yourself, whatever job you want to do, that is exactly what you should do. Obviously, as long as it's not, you know, harmfully impacting other people. I think it's mm. about throw away this idea of what a man is supposed to be, what a woman is supposed to be, and actually just be who you are, whoever that is intrinsically. Mm. And for some people that aligns. Some people who are women love pink. Some people who are men love blue, to simplify it. But then some people don't Don't. like that. So I love dresses. You know, I I feel very, very feminine. But I had a group of women for lunch a couple of weeks before uh, COVID, the first COVID lockdown, Mm -hmm. and I was talking about how I feel quite, you know, I, I feel very female, you know, mm-hmm. I love wearing dresses, love wearing, you know, all of those things. And they, every one of them was so surprised to hear that because they didn't feel the same way. Mm. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm surprised. I want to talk about identity a little bit because I mm-hmm. grew up Lebanese Australian and for the listeners of the podcast, they've heard me talk about this before, but it took me so long to find people like me, mm. like to read about people like mm. me, to see people like me on television. And I was always searching for it. Like when I first read Looking for Alabrandi by mm. Melina Marchetta, it blew me away because yeah. there was somebody I could identify with. Mm. Yeah, getting to see yourself reflected back like that's so important, right? Mm. We need it. We all yeah. need it. Yeah. I think for me reading um, Holding the Man by Timothy Coingrave was such a moment for me mm. as a young queer person. I was 18. I just moved to Sydney. I remember just the fact that it was a book, like an actual book, which I had grown up having such revere and respect for books and thinking that they were important places where important stories were told. And then to read a story about someone, a gay man in Sydney, where I was, I was reading the book in Sydney and the the locations that it was talking about. I was like, oh, that's, I've been there. I know what that is. It's so validating. And imagine, yeah, like looking for Ella Brandy would have been one of those books for you where you just felt seen. And I think Mm. that's, what so many people need. And, and so often our pop culture, our commercial TV networks don't reflect. And I don't know, for me, books was always a place where I could find more diverse stories than what the world was providing me at large. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Talk to me about your move from, you know, why did you come to Sydney and what is it that you came to Sydney for and yeah. how your career developed? I think I came to Sydney, well, the initial impetus to come to Sydney was to look at universities. I wanted to go to NIDA to do acting or maybe to Whopper in Western Australia to do music theatre. And I never made it to either of those. I made it to the Stonewall Hotel and my friend Stephanie. Who different I'd, to the bit other. bit different, not quite a university. <laughs> no. Can't get a degree in there. Well, not no. one that's recognised by any academic institute anyway. And my friend Stephanie took me there and I was reluctant to go because it was a gay bar. It wasn't that I was in denial about being attracted to guys. It was more that I just had no stories to understand or relate my experience to what that actually meant. And once I walked through the doors of Stonewall, I was like, this is what gay is. And it was just exciting from the first moment because I realised that there was all of these people inside those walls who did reflect my experience and that was so important for me and it became such a a place of discovery. I never made it to the NIDA open day. I never made it to the Whopper open day. I guess at the time I thought maybe that was a, a bad choice, but looking back, things have turned out okay and it was I discovered drag shows and watching drag entertainers on stage and it just seemed like a place where as a young person who wanted to be a performer, there was nowhere to really perform. Like if I wanted to be an actor, I had to audition and wait wait for somebody to say yes and I was doing those things and not getting those opportunities. And so drag was a place where you could almost, if you wanted to do it, you could be on stage and you could perform and that's what I loved and so that's what I did. Mm. So you kind of walked into Stonewall and then had great fun and mm. probably had fun for a couple of years. <laughs> yes. When did fun turn to work? Um, I started doing drag for, for fun socially, like getting yeah. dressed up and going out, and then I had this. How did you feel about that? when you was, Is it scary when you first did it? Like, no, did you it, was, think- it was like Halloween, getting oh, dressed okay. up in a party costume. Yep. Okay. And I think that's the thing is that you can always justify it the first couple of times. It was New yeah. Year's Eve of the year 2000, 2001, and we were going to a party and it was a bit of fun. Mm. But in that bit of fun, I found a place where I was able to express femininity in a way that was less socially acceptable as a boy. 
And so I was always really drawn to drag, but I always thought that it was a bit undignified. And I always thought that doing it was shameful and that I shouldn't do it and that I needed to be focusing on, you know, being an actor or getting into NIDA or, or whatever it was, but it certainly wasn't drag. Mm-hmm. And then I had a business idea to go around nightclubs with a neck tray selling chewing gum and chopper chops and glow sticks. And I thought that it was this great idea that I would make millions of dollars. And I approached the Stonewall Hotel about it. And the uh, entertainment manager, Rika Paris, said that she loved the idea, but for it to fit with Stonewall's MO, they would need a drag queen to do it. And now Rika, ah. Rika is a trans woman and a, and a showgirl. And I think she had seen maybe something in me that I hadn't seen in myself. And so she was almost creating an opportunity for me because I think she saw the shame uh, and probably had experienced the shame herself of, you know, evading the gender binary. And so she sort of suggested that, uh, yeah, a drag queen do it. And I was like, well, I can't afford to pay a drag queen. And she was like, well, you, you've done drag. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll do it myself. And so I had to have, it's kind of sad. It's kind of beautiful that I had to find a way to justify doing what I loved. Through, I love that story. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it was like I was therefore like justified. I was like, well, it's a job. Yes, um, of course, yeah. But I think and you're sec- making money. I'm making money. But secretly at the t- same time, I think it was far more important than, you know, just a yeah. job. Yeah. It was a it was a way for me to understand who I am and and express myself and all of that shame that I felt about dressing up in drag or being feminine, you know, did take a lot of years to unpack. But I'm so glad that I did because, as you mentioned earlier, you know, p- parents are worried that life can be harder for their queer kids. Yeah. But I can tell you now, looking back, I'm 39 and I look back at it all and I think the greatest gift I ever had was failing at masculinity, was failing at being straight, was failing at all of the things I was supposed to because I've now come to understand myself in a way that is outside the status quo, in a way that I've had to question all the parts of my identity. And so who I am right now is I know uh, the truth. I know that all of these things that I do are me because I've had to question all of them. And and so, yeah, in a weird way, it's the greatest strength rather than perhaps the weakness that might be perceived from the outside. I think that that is so true in almost everything. Like Mm. for a long time, I was always so embarrassed to be a Lebanese Australian. Mm. I never wanted to talk about it. I didn't, I mean, my lunches were terrible. I did not <laughs> want to pull them out in the yeah. class. You know, I just didn't want to do it. Tell me about that. your, I had the liverwurst <laughs> and Vegemite sandwiches from my oh, Danish right. mother, which was yeah. always a bit, what was your lunch? Uh, falafel on Lebanese bread. <sighs> Now, we would Yum. die for that now. But now, right. now it's right. bougie. <laughs> but back there it wasn't. But, do you know, then it came, then an age came, and I think it was high school where I started to embrace it mm. and where I started using it as a tool, as a point of difference. It started to define who I was. But for mm. a long time, I wanted to be called Belinda. I just didn't want any association. I was always, I didn't want my parents to come up to the school. I didn't want any of that. It's not. It's it, anyway. I want to get back just quickly. Did you make any money selling? Uh, I mean, I did, which back then was a lot uh, compared to what I would have been making, like an hourly sort of thing. I reckon that was like a hundred and hundred and fifty bucks a night, sort of wow, selling chewing gum. Bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then I started doing 
then I then I, some friends asked if I wanted to perform in shows, and so my first job was at Stonewall on a Saturday night in a in a drag show because yeah. they knew about my performance background. And then Arc on a Thursday night, the Midnight Shift on a Friday, and pretty soon I was working up and down the strip as a as a drag performer. And obviously, way more comfortable with it by then. Yeah, yeah, still though. Um, I think comfortable in the world, in the world that I was living in, in that little bubble. Yes. But and community. And community, but to go yeah. outside that community, say back to my friends and family in Brisbane, even to my yeah. parents, there was still shame about about that. And I think like, you know, it's interesting you you talk about growing up Lebanese Australian, right? Because in some way every person has their struggle of an outsider. And I think that's the real kicker is that everybody thinks they're the one that feels like they're on the outside, but actually there is no inside. I mean, I guess there's like, dare I say the straight white man, but I think even he probably feels a huge imposition to be that straight white man, to live up to that idea. I think oh, everybody, I so agree. I, and hmm. I think that's happening more and more. Yeah. yeah and I just was, think, yeah. I think that everybody feels a bit outside. And I think that's the thing about storytelling is that like your experience growing up was different to mine, but you can see the the difference or the outsideness in my story reflected back in your own story and, and connect with that and understand that, which is, mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. that's the beauty of storytelling. It is. So tell me your path to fame. How did that come? In 2003, I went to the auditions for Australian Idol and I I didn't even know where the idea came from. I don't remember hearing it. Maybe there was an ad on the TV. It was the first season. We didn't really know what reality TV was. I just knew that I loved performing. And I just went along the first day as Shane and I went along the next day as Courtney. And it was just always an idea that I had in my head. And I think that probably came from... Um, you know, the, the the sensibility of being a drag queen in Sydney drag in a post Priscilla world, there was always, there was always commentary in performance. It wasn't just standing on stage and singing a number. There was always a reason behind it, whether it was, didn't have to be a political message, but it was some sort of wit or statement or um, yeah, commentary. And so going along one day as Shane, going back the next day as Courtney just seemed to be like, seemed cheeky to me and it seemed to be fun and it seemed to make sense. Mm. So you did that. So I did that. And then that that was, I guess, what made me So what known. did you do? What did you perform? The first day, uh, as Shane, I sang uh, an Elton John song, your song by Elton John. I love that. Yeah. And then the next day I sang You Don't Own Me um, by Peggy Lee well, and many other people. And I didn't get through as Shane. And then the next day I got through as Courtney and then participated on Idol in different in different ways. I got knocked out, then I came back as a wild card, then I got knocked out again, and then they brought me back to do bits and pieces. And then I was the opening live act um, at the grand final at the Sydney Opera House, which was the largest watch TV event since Princess Diana's funeral, I remember oh, being told wow. at the time. It was like wow. a, a huge TV moment that first season of Australian Idol. The, the advent of reality television in Australia was just loved by millions of people and and, you know, to this day, gosh, we're nearly 20 years later, people of all ages still talk about remembering that first season of Australian Idol and remembering me coming back in drag. And it was back in a time where the whole nation sat down to watch the same TV show at the same time and would talk about it. And before social media, before 
you know, Netflix and, and before Facebook. I don't Facebook know where and... I was. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to go back and watch it. And listen, <laughs> tell me, how did you feel at the time? I felt excited. I felt that all of my dreams were being answered and that I had arrived and that the hard work was done. I rem- genuinely remember thinking, this is it. I've arrived. I'm here. I'm here. It's done. And then immediately afterwards being smacked in the face by the cold, harsh reality that it had barely begun, let alone, you know, yeah. finished. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I love the Spice Girls. They were, they were they inspired me in high school and I just remember, you know, dreaming of being whatever my own version of a Spice Girl would be one day. And in a weird way I feel like I've kind of done that. But yeah, at the time it was, I, I had a bit of a healthy dose, dose of delusion as to what success really looked like. Mm. And also to, I mean, have mild success, if you like, with this business and the podcast, mm-hmm. but it you're never quite there, are you? You just no. have to keep working hard. And I think that when I realised that, I mean, it's a bit of a tacky platitude about it's a journey, not a destination, but yeah. I think when you when you really love what you do, every part of that journey is important. And when you let go of perhaps the the final outcome, you just get to enjoy all of the bits along the way. And as you get older and you look back, you obviously are a lot more objective and you can see the the beauty and the wonder in all of those little parts and all those different experiences and the failures, you know, being so important as, as, as well as the successes. Mm. I mean, I, I feel lucky every day. I mean, I just, mm. I feel that, you know, I'm doing a job that I love, the job that I created, it, it, you know, it's been a long journey, but I'm always learning. And that's um, something that when I was younger and you might, might feel the same now, I always thought, you know, more when you get yeah. older. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. I always thought, I mean, you know, in terms of relationships, you'd have it all right. In terms yeah. of who you are, you'd have it. But that's just simply not true. I know. Isn't that the best <laughs> bit about getting older is that yeah. you just realise how little you know and then you learn to accept that and you learn yeah. to embrace that. But when you're younger, you have to, you, you have to know everything. Yeah. One of the things I, I love about being older is really, really being comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. I, you know, that, that's a real prize, I think. But, you know, you work hard to get there. Um, tell- I also think, sorry, I was just going to say, in, your, yeah. in, your, in my teens and my 20s, I remember always feeling uncomfortable in my own skin, thinking that was unique to me. But now I look back and I'm like, ah, oh, if you're in your 20s or your teens and you feel uncomfortable and you don't know who you are or what you're doing and all of that, you're actually probably exactly where you should be. Like that's literally what life is all about. And that feeling of discomfort is the the feedback of whether you're heading in the right direction or, or not the right direction and learning to discover yourself. And I think, yeah, I mean, whilst you can still feel discomfort for yourself in your 30s and your 40s and beyond, I'm sure, I think in your, in your teens, in your 20s, you're probably in exactly the right place if you're feeling a bit confused. Oh, totally agree with you. Um, so where to from here? Um, well, what have I got? I'm doing a play with the Sydney Theatre Company. Um, at the Sydney Opera House next year, Blythe Spirit by Noel Coward, which is very wow. exciting. Yes. Um, I'm going to be playing Elvira, which is also exciting because she's the, well, she's the leading lady as far as I'm concerned and the other leading ladies might disagree, but I, uh, I've, I'm excited about that. The book, um, I've got another season of One Plus One, which is uh, a, a show I host on the ABC, an interview show. Yeah. Yeah. And all of the the wonderful things that Sydney in the summer usually brings me, like the Sydney Game, Lesbian, Mardi Gras. There's always 
lots of wonderful things that come up in February and March and just enjoying being back in Australia after having lived overseas for the last 11 years to sort of have returned here for the time being at least is really yeah. exciting and getting to reconnect with family and friends and really focus on this book and its launch, which is well, so you also need to have to keep living and to keep growing because you will have to write part two of the memoir. Well, exactly. There's more experiences. <laughs> There's a weird part of writing a memoir around the beginning where you start to think of every experience as being like, oh, you should, yeah, you should do that. Do do that for the memoir. That'll that'll be. <laughs> It only lasts a, a couple of weeks and also then there was a global pandemic, so there wasn't much opportunity for experience. But sometimes I would find myself pushing my boundaries. Your own boundaries. My own boundaries <laughs> for the sake of the memoir, which I think was helpful. I didn't I didn't living push myself the, beyond the comfort zone. Living the life for the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what the next few years will be all about for part two. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. Really my pleasure. Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.